Welcome to Bible Fiber. I am Shelley Neese, president of the Jerusalem Connection, a Christian organization devoted to sharing the story of the people of Israel, both ancient and modern. This week, we are studying chapter seven, the next phase of the restoration process. The second literary unit is different from the first, both chronologically and stylistically. Yet, the plot of the second half followed the same pattern as the first. God and his sovereignty prompted a Persian king to authorize a large group of Judean exiles to return to Jerusalem and restore their nation. In round two of the story, the returnees were on a mission not to rebuild the temple, but to renew Judah's commitment to the laws of Moses. Themes of Persian favor, return, temple prioritization, and religious festivals connect Ezra's first and second units. Sixty years separate the closing of Ezra 6 and the opening of Ezra 7. The first section of the story left off with the completion of the Jerusalem temple in 515 BCE. Ezra's group arrived in Jerusalem in 458 BCE, during the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign. The narrator sweepingly left over the decades-long gap with the transitional phrase, now after this. One way to view the first six chapters is as a long prologue providing the historical background to the life and work of the book's central character, Ezra. Ezra does not make an appearance in the book titled after him until chapter 7. Once he came onto the scene, the narrative switched to first person, giving the story from Ezra's viewpoint. Ezra's superscription is by far the longest in the Hebrew Bible. According to the genealogical record, Ezra's father was Sariah. Sariah was the high priest in Jerusalem who Nebuchadnezzar's army carted off to Babylon and executed. The author went to great lengths to demonstrate that Ezra's long line of descent could be traced all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. He was also a descendant of Zadok, the dominant priestly group since the time of Solomon. Ezra's indisputable priestly lineage boosted his authority when it came time for him to institute painful reforms in the community. Usually, the title of priest conjures up images of priests administering sacrifices and tending to temple maintenance. However, Ezra, like the other priests living in exile, never had a temple to service or sacrifice to oversee. Instead, what does a priest without a temple do? In Ezra's case, he focused on the other priestly duties, giving his attention to scribal activities like writing, copying, and studying the Torah. The king described Ezra as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Ezra likely held a high position of authority within the exiled community. As the stories of Daniel, Esther, and Nehemiah indicate, talented Jews in Persia did not suffer from their distinctiveness in the Babylonian Empire. They managed to rise through the Babylonian courts. According to the narrator, Ezra had the ear of the king who granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Perhaps Ezra was an advisor in the royal court concerning Jewish affairs. Somehow the king openly granted Ezra an audience when Ezra requested a meeting with the king. Ezra explained that he had to gather his courage to approach the king, and he brought a contingent of Israel's leaders with him. Ezra's memoir does not give the details of the conversation, but based on the result, Ezra's proposition earned the king's confidence. 
Revisionist historians wanting to affix a late date to the five books of Moses have argued that Ezra may have been the principal scribe to compile and edit the Torah. However, to me, the narrative makes clear that Ezra is an expert in the sacred text, not the author of the text. Ezra was credentialed as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. That wording implied he mastered a law code and text that preexisted him, but he did not create or codify it. In fact, the king's decree specifically stated that Ezra carried a codified copy of the law with him from Babylon to Jerusalem. The role of Torah in the life of the community received a huge boost during the Babylonian exile. As a religious minority in benign captivity, Torah observance was the only thing the community had to retain their national and religious identity. The biblical stories from the Persian period described exiles who grew stronger in their obedience to the laws of Moses. Daniel refused food from the king's table because it violated the dietary laws of Judaism. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego accepted the death penalty over bowing down to an idol. King Artaxerxes commissioned Ezra to lead a caravan of returnees to Jerusalem. Affixed to chapter 7's narrative is the king's letter of endorsement in Aramaic. My editor's eye wants so badly to redesign the book, laying out Ezra's lists, letters, and flash-forwards in a more graphically appealing way with text boxes and pull quotes. But in the letter, the king and his seven counselors granted Ezra permission to lead the group of priests and laity who freely offers to go to Jerusalem. Considering that any of the Judean exiles in Babylon could have migrated to Judea for the last six decades, these were not the 50,000 zealous returnees of the first wave, eager to fulfill prophecy. Ezra had to lobby the comfortable exiles to budge, specifically temple staff. Ezra's recruits numbered around 5,000, including priests, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants. Ezra was not interested in leading his people politically or militarily. The narrator described Ezra as possessing a heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. Yet still, some political authority was placed in Ezra's hands as a representative of the king in his return journey to Judah. The king's decree stated that Ezra must investigate the extent to which Judah was practicing the laws of Moses. The decree encouraged Ezra, as judge of the land, to delegate his task as needed by appointing teachers and judges to spread knowledge of their religious laws and build a proper judicial system to enforce the laws. Ezra was not bringing the people a new law. Since the time of Moses, the people were familiar with the laws of Moses. They matured in their commitment to the Torah and exile, but many of the laws pertaining to land and temple worship did not apply to their lives in the diaspora so they were unfamiliar with the law's application. Ezra's goal was not to institute a new law, but to democratize the ancient law that was part of their mutual heritage as God's chosen people. Archaeologists have discovered a plethora of documentation that illustrates the Persians' endorsement of local law codes and tolerance for local religions throughout the empire. This policy extended to most loyal provinces, including the rival Jewish community of Elephantine in Egypt. Papyri from the Jewish garrison town revealed that King Darius sent the leaders of Elephantine a decree encouraging their community to observe the biblical feast of unleavened bread. Still, Artaxerxes' sanctioning of Ezra was not entirely altruistic. 
The king's decree gave Ezra the power to strictly enforce both, the law of your God and the law of the king. There was a punitive feature to the decree, aiming to punish breakers of the imperial laws. It stated, All who will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on them. The king wanted a check on the peripheral Judean province for the measure of law and order by Persian standards. At the time of Ezra's journey, revolts in Egypt plagued Artaxerxes' rule. The Bible does not lay out the political motivations of the Persian king, but chances are he was looking for a loyal vassal to serve as a buffer between Egypt and the broader empire. Judah had potential to be the king's stronghold in a land fertile for revolts. Sending someone he trusted, like Ezra, helped ensure the enforcement of Persian laws in Judah. The king placated the spiritual practices of the Judeans, hoping they would not be tempted to ally with Egypt or follow Egypt's rebellious example. Artaxerxes and his seven advisors contributed silver and gold to Ezra's mission. Once again, the king asked the Israelite exiles unwilling to return to Jerusalem to donate to the pilgrimage. The travelers would use the donations to purchase bulls, rams, and lambs and their grain offerings and their drink offerings once they arrived at the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. Artaxerxes was surprisingly aware of Jewish ritual necessities for proper temple worship. Apparently, the Persian treasury also located additional items stolen from the first temple by Nebuchadnezzar. The Persian administrators returned those to Ezra's party as well. The king concluded with writing Ezra a blank check saying, whatever seems good to you and your colleagues to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do. Overall, Artaxerxes' provisions were even greater than the generosity of Cyrus to the first mission. Affixed to the king's decree was another letter addressing the treasury secretaries Ezra might encounter along the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Ezra was meant to carry the letter of endorsement as he traveled throughout the imperial towns, like a government-issued special visa. The king commanded the treasury secretaries, whatever the priest Ezra the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Each treasury was meant to contribute additional silver, wheat, wine, oil, and salt to Ezra's caravan should they need extra supplies. Artaxerxes further sweetened his deal, promising that temple staff in Jerusalem would be exempt from the imperial taxes. Surely a tax exemption for clergy was a great lobbying tool for Ezra to get more priests and Levites on his mission. With the close of the king's decree and the letter attached to the decree, the narrative switched into first-person voice of Ezra. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who extended to me steadfast love before the king. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leaders from Israel. Until this point in the book, the narrator has written anonymously. Perhaps the narrator was always Ezra, and he only let his own voice break in once his story merged with the narrative. Or, more likely, the anonymous narrator of the book had access to Ezra's personal memoirs, which he incorporated into this section. Either way, Ezra used his voice to reiterate that God was the author of all the events that his generation witnessed in leading up to their return mission. The moving of the heart of Artaxerxes, the lavishness of the king's provision, and the imperial political support. Overwhelmed with gratitude, Ezra gave all the glory to God for putting the idea of the mission in the king's head. 
God used Artaxerxes, a pagan king, to be a positive influence on Judah's spiritual redemption. The book of Ezra is the story of a two-step restoration process. The first mission, under the leadership of Sheshbazar and then Zerubbabel, focused their efforts on restoring their nation physically with the building of the temple. Ezra's vocation and calling was to bring spiritual restoration to the people. They have been worshiping God through the temple and sacrificial system. In that way, God had purified the people and forgiven their sins. God called Ezra to institute the worship of Yahweh through their sacred text and obedience to God's laws. The covenant provided their code of living, the mysterious means by which they pursued individual holiness and communal harmony. Without being faithful to their covenant, Judah could never be in a right relationship to God. Per their calling, the restored community was to be a holy people dwelling in their holy land and living in obedience to their holy standards. Thank you for listening, and please continue to participate in this Bible reading challenge. Next week, we are reading Ezra 8. Ezra, still speaking in his own voice for the next two chapters, narrates the long journey to the Holy Land with all its stops and restarts. For all the biblical references each week, please see the show transcript on our blog or by signing up for our emails at thejerusalemconnection.us. I don't say all the references in the podcast, but they're all in the transcript. Send me a message, I'll respond. Bible Fiber is available on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. Shabbat Shalom.